Please open your Bibles with me and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to, Lord willing, by his power and enablement today, preach on a topic that many pastors, many churches avoid. We haven't preached on it in a while. It's not by means of trying to avoid it, but a very important message, a very serious message that peers into the depths of our hearts, and that is, of course, on money, and particularly what we do with it. So 2 Corinthians chapter 8, this is going to be our main text for today, but we are going to go through many scriptures, so please keep your Bibles at the ready, as they say. So God's Word says to us, 2 Corinthians 8, we're going to read the first eight verses Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation and the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. So we urged Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. But just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness, And in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. I'm not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. Amen. Let's pray. Holy and sovereign Father of heaven, we thank you for the wonderful revelation we have already received today of your absolute sovereignty in all things. And yet in your great sovereignty, how you have so mercifully and wonderfully revealed yourself in your condescension. And in giving many gifts to men, especially the greatest gift of salvation that we receive through Jesus Christ, you are also so very aware of our daily tangible, physical needs. So aware that you know the numbers of the hairs upon our head. And so aware and caring that you grant us opportunities to earn money, to make money. And you have given us this means of exchange for your purposes, for your wills to fulfill your decrees. So this is such a wonderful, glorious circular truth that you have provided. And I pray today, Father, that we would all be encouraged. We would be aware and take full advantage of the great means of grace that you have given to us first and foremost, that we might be faithful stewards, that we might be as generous, as willing, as begging as these dear suffering saints in Macedonia. Father, so that we may be a testimony 
of the glory of your name. For it is our desire, Lord, it is our prayer today that your name will be hallowed in the preaching of your word, that our souls would be lifted up to you in adoration, in submission. Father, that we would give, grant you and your word our fullest attention to your truths, correcting truths, counseling truths, wonderful truths, that we may behold Christ as truly our supreme treasure above and beyond all things in this world and in this life. So as we ask, Father, we pray and beseech that your Holy Spirit would grant the unction, grant the understanding, grant the power, Father, to do your will this day with your word in Jesus' holy name. Amen. You may be seated. Contrary to what the world says or may sing in your ear, money does not make the world go round. But it is, as you know very well, it's an important part of our life. And especially in the life and the work and the ongoing ministry of the Church of Jesus Christ. And so our final message in our series, Pastor Emilio has titled so, titled so wonderfully, Go to Church. We're going to look at what money really is, as well as riches, wealth, possessions. But what specifically what motivates our heart in the earning, in the accumulating, the saving of it, and especially how we use it. What do we put, how do we put it to use? And we're going to look, as I said, at several texts today, so have your Bibles handy. But as we look around us today, we don't have to look far to hear of many opportunities to earn money. Um, most of them by legitimate hard work and labor, Others through various investments, maybe through inheritance um, of acquiring land or real estate. Others through Ponzi schemes or an inheritance, as I said, but, or some just flat out stealing it. And along with this are a number of investment firms and advisors willing to help us figure out how much to save, where to put our savings, where to get the best return, how to, how to achieve that financial security in this life, if that is really such a thing to, to have. But how do we plan for our golden years, if you will, and hopefully not for the collection of seashells when we are old. But the question for us, the heart question for us as we approach a subject is how should we, as the church, as professing believers in Jesus Christ, who has given us all things, how should we in the 21st century, in light of the world's ideas and all that they offer us, how should we view money? How do we approach money? How do we save it? How do we worship God with our money? And we're looking at it today because Jesus Christ taught on money more than he taught on any other subject in the Gospels. More than hell, more than sex, more than heaven. And the main reason he addressed this in various parables and in specific truths is because money can either be a blessed means, a way to serve others and to worship God, a full demonstrative means, but it can also become a very deceptive, dangerous idol in our lives and that one that will lead to ultimate destruction. Money was and is a big deal to Jesus. 
And I pray and hope today that we'll see that money and wealth can be of great benefit. A beautiful demonstration of love, with, for, especially for those with a renewed heart, when, when we see, as just we sung about, and as we read, when grace enables and motivates that care and that providing for another need, it can be a very practical and powerful means of advancing the kingdom of God through the local church, through missions, through gospel-centered charities. But Jesus also gives some very severe warnings instructing us in the very real dangers, the eternal tragedies that money can bring about in our lives, especially our love of it, our worship of it, how it will divide and destroy our hearts. But money in and of itself is neutral. It's morally neutral. It's really a means of, of currency. It's paper and metal. It's a medium of exchange for goods and services, things that we need and things that we value. But the core of what we need to understand is that money and our value of it, how we use it, is a barometer of our hearts. Just how we approach money, how we approach wealth, what we do with it will clearly show our heart's desires, our, our truest affections. It will reflect our internal morality. Just an example, we, we innately value our lives and we enjoy food and various tastes, right? So we will spend money on food. We go to the grocery store, no problem. We place value on what we wear, so we go out and purchase clothing and shoes. No problem. In fact, these are what Paul says we should be content with. The same is true with education, and, and we also value entertainment probably more than we should, so we give away our money to Netflix or Xbox or sporting events or the latest apps and technologies. But as Christians, we should also place a great value in the ministry of God's Word of its various forms, especially through the local church through missions, through missionaries, through various gospel outreaches. So we value that. We give our money to the church. But this just demonstrates simply how our hearts move, how they follow after and prioritize and treasure various things in this life and where we focus our riches on, what priority it has when each check comes every two weeks or every month. And this is, of course, exactly what Jesus says to us. For where our treasure is, what we place a high value upon, what we believe brings us happiness, fulfillment, or security, how we use this morally neutral medium will reflect back to us if, if we look, if we examine ourselves. It will demonstrate to the church as well and it will demonstrate to the world just where our hearts are, what's important to us. So I've, I've divided this sermon up into two sections. We're going to first look at money, wealth, and then what's at the heart of joyful giving? But the, first, the promise or intention, the source, the purpose of wealth. And along with that, the dangers in the, the worship of money and the judgment that it incurs. But then we're going to look closely into what I'm calling this message. I've titled it Grace Enabled Joyful Giving. Or another way of saying how we are giving toward true eschatological wealth 
because we know our ultimate treasure isn't found in this world. It is only going to be in Christ Jesus for an eternity of eternities. But we begin this first section with a promise. Scripture does not speak against our making money or earning money. In fact, God says to the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy 8.18, But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth, that he may confirm his covenant which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. This was God's covenantal power granted for a special purpose to establish his covenant. And we see this power is this covenantal promise made real to many by obedient and godly men that feared the Lord and were blessed through the ages. We can think of of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, of, of Boaz, of Solomon, and many others. God did not withhold the power from them to make money but to those who were obedient to him, to his covenant and promises, he granted this power, wisdom, and opportunity to make wealth. That's all that's contained in this power to make wealth, is he gives us the wisdom, the skills, the talents, the opportunity. And we also hear this through Solomon's wisdom literature. Proverbs 15, 6 says, Great wealth is in the house of the righteous, but trouble is is in the income of the wicked. And speaking of material wealth, we see that both the righteous and really the wicked are on the same level with regards to material wealth. But the great inequality, though, is in the enjoyment, in the use of it. And with the righteous is not only found God's power and enabling to make wealth, but we find there is an even greater wealth that's found in God and in Christ. But even for the unrighteous, as well as for us, we also hear the Lord's wisdom in granting this power to gain wealth. It's a means of testing our hearts, both in affliction and in the abundance of riches. Proverbs 17.3 says, The refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the hearts. He is always testing the character of the human soul to examine, to find out what lies concealed from men. And we also have from Paul through his instructions to Timothy regarding those who are rich, who have accumulated money, wealth. He says in 1 Timothy 6.17 that in the same way, those who are rich, their hope must be fixed on God, that it is God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. So earning money through the ordained call of working, laboring at a skill in order to provide for ourselves, for our families, is a direct blessing from the Lord and his promises to us. Paul further exhorts the Thessalonians in this way in in the first letter in chapter 4. He says, we are to be walking in a manner of life that pleases the Lord And in this, to excel still more by means of making it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands. The reason is that we will behave properly toward outsiders and not have to be supported by others and not be in need. But parenthetically with this, now having the ability to share with those in needs because of God's blessing and power to make wealth. But in a brief and very important contrast to this, 
There's also a very severe warning by Paul of not working and providing that comes with a, with a potential potent condemnation, excuse me. First Timothy 5.8 says, but if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So we see that it is the all-powerful, covenant-keeping, providential God that keeps us, that, that gives us his power, that gives us his wisdom, that gives us the skills and the talents we need to gain wealth, to work, to earn a living, to make money, to provide for the people in our lives and the things we need. So where is the problem with this? The problem is we lose sight of the dangers of money, of those desires that begin to creep in when we get that extra bonus or we get that raise or some of our debts are now paid off. We have that extra income, that there's this appeal in our hearts to, to the worshipful drive within them where we begin to maximize the importance of this temporal blessing over and to trust it as a means of security to yeah, that's going to be our means of joy. That's going to be our true means of life and, and put this over and above the greater treasure that is truly found only in Jesus Christ. And this is what our Lord warns us about clearly in the Gospel of Luke. I want you to turn there with me to chapter 12. We're going to look at this in a little bit of depth here. Of the dire consequences of, of the worship of money and wealth. Luke chapter 12, begin in verse 15. And Jesus is here speaking to a gathering of what is accounted thousands of people, warning them here to fear God, the one who not only has the power over our bodies, but over our souls to cast them both into hell. But then in verse 15, Jesus begins, he says, then he said to them, this large crowd, including his disciples, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Greed, covetousness, has many forms, many faces, many tentacles, if you will. It can be that hunger, higher for, hunger for higher advanced social status. It can be an insatiable desire for money, for wealth, for accumulating riches. And even these latter motives are used as the means to accomplish the first. If I just had this much money or this much more money, then fill in the blank. But what our Lord's getting at in, this sec in the second part of this verse goes even deeper. He's considering our souls because our lives here are as a metaphor for salvation. And the very life of our souls either propagates the glory of God through the earning and proper use and giving of our possessions in our desire to freely give, to freely share our wealth with those in need, or it results in the death of our souls when possessions are exalted as our means of life, our hope, security, even our worship and thinking that this is going to bring our salvation. Where do we get this? Well, Jesus goes on. He explains it here in the context of the parable, both of the crowds and the disciples, with this universal warning. In verse 16, he begins the parable. 
and he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man. And note, he was already wealthy. He had already accumulated his, his riches. Likely land, a good farmer, as we're going to see, he had possessions. This land of the rich man was very productive. What God had provided in his creation, in his blessing, in his power, had brought forth a very abundant crop. No issues here. This should result in thanksgiving and praise to God and a sharing. But what happens, and he begins to reason to himself. He begins that internal dialogue, pondering what he had done. Notice the, the extensive use of I and my here. We see the subtleties of this worship beginning to form and, and, and stir in his heart. He says, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. He was blind to his own captivity, to his own bondage brought about by the abundance of God's blessing. He appears to be a great farmer, yes, but he exposes now in his heart the workings of greed, the workings of covetousness. Rather than looking beyond himself to the well-being of others, giving his abundance, doing this even with the full knowledge of the extent of his agricultural harvest, he knew how big it was going to be. He intentionally withholds from those in need, and not just individually, Think of how this would affect the entire economy of where he lived. Farming was a big deal in this time. But with such self-deception, he attempts to glory in his rest, in his fullness, and blind to his own temporal declaration to be at ease. Let's just kick back. I've made it. Things are good. I don't have to worry about anything. I'm going to have even bigger barns, so I don't have to worry about what's going on with anybody else utter self-indulgence, all temporal, all temporal. Go through your fingers like sand, and God calls him what? A fool, ignorant. He rebels against God, the commands of God, the blessings of God, the grace of God, the provision of God, and ultimately his own life through his own greed in bondage to this because of the worship of his riches, his dependence upon them as all-providing, so blinded by his greed, God says, you're a fool. And what should have resounded in his mind and in his heart is what we see in, in Solomon's wisdom literature, Proverbs 3, 9 to 10. We're going to come back to the Luke 12 in just a minute, but... Solomon says here, honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. How do we do this? Worship is manifested through love to those in need. And the further goes on in the promise here. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. God is not a stingy God. He is a generous, giving God. 
But what we hear back in Luke 12 is this very sobering, eternally soul-piercing judgment. God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? He wouldn't. But so is the man who stores up treasure for himself. Here's the key. And is not rich toward God. This is the real, very real danger of not taking into account the potential peril in our lives with riches. And and that being the dangerous outcome of a life that will be consumed with money. I got to have more. I got to have more. Collecting riches, growing in wealth, that somehow that is going to bring about a measure of security that we don't trust God to provide an easier way of life, so they think, rather than being rich toward God, demonstrating his bountiful glory and through this selfless giving to the needs of others. And this same is true for any person whose disposition, whose character is such that they simply don't care for those needs around them. They have that inner dialogue telling them that their own security, their own livelihood, Their own survival will be somehow hindered through sharing, through giving, through loving one another. It's what Paul warns Timothy again in 1 Timothy 6.10. It says, for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Just what we heard in Pastor Emilio's exhortation today about the dangers of apostasy. It comes about through the love of money and riches as well. And this is why then Jesus turns to his disciples here and he says to them and he says to us, for this reason I say to you, do not worry about your life. Don't worry about it. Don't fret over it. Don't panic over it. His brother just so wonderfully taught us in Sunday school, do we not trust in both the sovereignty of God and the providence of God toward those he has saved and called, elected from eternity past, and now brought them into his bosom, into his family? Don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about your body of what you're going to put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. And he goes on to compare the ravens. They don't store up. They don't have barns. They don't have a place to keep all their goodies. But God provides for them. And like the lilies of the field, clothed in beautiful splendor, that's how God will clothe us. I don't mean in Armani or whatever, but he clothes us in the beauty of Christ. And he says further down in verse 29, this is extremely powerful. And do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink and do not keep worrying. In other words, don't be filled with arrogant worry and mere sustenance seeking pursuits. This this attitude is an affront to God. It's an insult to his character. He is faithful. Great is thy faithfulness and great is his commitment to care for his people 
And Jesus goes on in verse 30, for all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek. Boy, isn't that all over the place. But they don't find the treasure in Christ in these things. But the promise we have, the fa- your Father knows that you need these things. He's not turning a blind eye to them. But seek his kingdom. Seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Do not be afraid. Oh, this is precious. Do not be afraid, little flock. Can you hear the great shepherd? For your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes in, comes near, and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, what you value highly, what you depend on, what you rest in, where you find your security, where you find your hope and joy, there will your heart be also. We are called to be rich toward God. Not that God needs our money. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. Modern perspective, combine Bill Gates with Mr. Bezos, Soros. God's got them outnumbered by an infinitude, okay? Our being rich toward God means that we count God as our riches, as our great reward, and we trust him in that as the faithful provider. But unlike this man, this sin-bound farmer, and several others in the gospel accounts, the rich young ruler, the one who hears the word of God but is then choked out by the riches of the world, those even buying and selling in the temple for temporal gains. Unlike these real and parabolic examples, the child of God should be one who trusts both in, as I said, the sovereignty and the providence of God. Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, 24, we cannot serve money, meaning we cannot, we cannot calculate our behaviors and our lives to maximize what money can give to us or do for us. Where we're always trying to find out the benefits and luxuries of money. We cannot serve money and God in just the same way. Serving God is in the same vein of thinking, living, planning, doing all of our behavior to maximize the joy and the pleasures found in God through Jesus Christ where we find all true, all the benefits of life, joy, grace, hope, love, and security. For the believer, we serve under a great shepherd who cares for his flock, a great father who takes incredible care of his children throughout all of life's events and needs, and a great king who has all authority, all power to work in favor for his elect and his bride. And this shows us again, I I will repeat this many times, the sovereignty and the providence of God, and it silences our worries. I remembered faintly, but I dug it up, out of the Heidelberg Confession, or excuse me, the Catechism from 1563, question 27. What do you understand by the providence of God? Answer, 
the almighty, everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures, and so governs them that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. All of this has been our introduction on money, riches, briefly the promises of proper use, which we're gonna get into now, but the great peril to our souls when we worship money, when we strive after their temporal riches, their perceived power. And now we're gonna go back to our main scripture, which what enables a, a gospel-impacted person to be a cheerful giver of the word and, and to give to the glory of God. And the heart of this matter of this passage is really, Paul covers it in two chapters. We're not gonna go through all two chapters, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, but to examine and encourage the heart of a believer to be a cheerful giver, we're going to look at verses 1 through 8 again. But briefly, some, some contextualization is necessary here. If you remember, if you want to get really in-depth details on this, excellent sermons, go back and pull up Pastor Emilio's sermons from about, I think, six years ago on 2 Corinthians. But briefly, Paul has really, in chapter 7, he's exposed his heart He's been greatly encouraged by the report coming back from Titus about how their Christian church, after they had received his severe letter, how they have now progressed in their growth and their love and, 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 and respect for Paul. But also with that is a report about the collection that had started a year ago that hadn't made a whole lot of progress. It wasn't fulfilled. But Paul's sending Titus with these two faithful delegates to the Corinthians to be a, really a catalyst to bringing the collection to a conclusion. But what was so critical to Paul about this collection and what were his motivations behind this, or better, what does this reveal about Paul's theology in exhorting these Corinthians this way about money and about giving, about supporting the needs of really the mother church in Jerusalem. And quickly, there, there's four areas that we see not only here, but in through all of his epistles about his theology in this. First, he was, he was fulfilling his promise that he made to the leaders in the Jerusalem church that he would remember the poor, Galatians 2.10. He was also tangibly conveying the, the concern and the compassion of these Gentile believers in Macedonia, in the northern part of Greece, all these different churches, Philippi, Berea, Thessalonica, and on the basis of their newfound equality in Christ, and through this, by demonstrating through the sharing of their needs of this collection. And Paul was seeking to, to essentially bind together these two ethnic groups, these two branches of the church, if you will, and demonstrate his and their indebtedness as I said, to the, to the mother church in Jerusalem. And then in a very strong sense, he was preparing to make possible and usher in this eschatological fulfillment of Israel's conversion 
through the demonstration of the Gentiles' love and sharing, is now united in Christ in and of the same church. We know Paul's heart was constantly Christocentric, constantly gospel-centered, and, and really encouraging an exercise of divine grace in and through these believers into all matters of their life, but especially these Gentile believers that he was called to preach to. And so he launches now into this appeal to the Corinthians, to the believers there, to the church in Corinth, to complete this collection project. Not merely to finalize the collection, that was important, but to stir their hearts in generosity, to see the need for this work, to not, not just with the, the tangible means of generosity and the results of great help with giving, but to reveal what he calls the grace work of Christ and for Christ to receive the glory through this work. It's very interesting. We don't see Paul making any kind of threats. He doesn't continue on in any severity with his letter, doesn't use any modern-day televangelistic appeals, emotional crying, but no, he does this beautifully. He exposes the example, the grace work of Christ, and the heart of the believers in the church in Macedonia. Remember, many churches here. And this, this is not just a static, lifeless obedience to an appeal. But through the revelation of the truly amazing power of the grace work of Christ in their hearts, of each soul here, this sacrificial giving, this generosity, this glorification of Christ's name was made manifest. So we're going to look briefly at five points in this section that magnifies this grace work of Christ. So we're going to look at grace that enables giving, grace that enables giving, grace that transcends affliction, grace that serves, grace in devotion, and then grace that multiplies. So first, grace that enables giving. This charis, this grace of God and the generosity of the saints is the first critical principle and Paul's really his opening bookend of this whole inclusio of grace that starts in, in chapter 8, verse 1, and goes all the way to chapter 9, verse 14. This is the basis, the motivation of, of it is what Paul says in verse 4, and what stirred these saints. It says they were actually begging Paul and urging with great favor to participate in supporting the saints of Christ's body. This is an amazing demonstration of the work of grace in these saints, the work of God. It is the grace that was given to these churches passively by God to these souls in these churches in Macedonia. Grace, yes, given in their salvation, but the grace that flows into all aspects of their lives and is the source of their generosity. And as it was for these saints, so should it be, as Paul is exhorting the Corinthians and exhorting us, that it goes beyond just mere obligation. Oh, yeah, I guess I got to do it. I'm a Christian. I'm in the church. I'm supposed to give. Not just a cold duty. And it was apart from any manner of spiritual manipulation on Paul's part. No coer coercion at all. 
our generosity in whatever form it is, whether it's monetary, whether it's labor, it, it must flow from the grace of God. Otherwise, it's, it's joyless, it's lifeless, it's just cold duty. But this is so crucial for us to grasp here that, that Paul references this grace 10 times in chapter 8 alone. It has significance. It's important for us to look at this. It, it's God's display of enabling us and, and, and demonstrating unconditional kindness. It is a privilege and favor in the sense of honor and participating in this offering. It is an administering a collection and actually carrying out of a giving of a service. And, and it's, it's in a being on the ready with eagerness in this virtuous act. And it is also a, a proof and expression of goodwill and gratitude as, as one who has also received such benevolence, such goodness, such grace. But Paul wasn't inciting some church-wide rally or stirring up some giving competition, but he was certainly displaying how this work of grace is so complementary so stirring of zeal, so enthusiastic to know about the need to share in the great privileges and the blessings of giving to those saints in Jerusalem. I think for the world to see this today at work in the churches, true churches of Jesus Christ would set them on their backsides. And just preparing this message, it, it constantly reminded me of, of as I speak on, share with you guys many times, is just what goes on in Cuba. In the midst of their affliction, in the midst of their suffering, the grace abounds to where God's provision is truly miraculous that they don't want to hold on to it. They'll walk 50 kilometers to share it with brothers and sisters. So this is very real. Okay, our second point, grace that transcends affliction. And what further magnifies just brings a level of, of intensity, just joy to it, is this work of Jesus Christ in his church is the revelation of the suffering that these churches were in the midst of. Look at verse 2. In, they, they were in the midst of persecution, in the midst of great ordeal and affliction. They were in extreme poverty, deep poverty due to their persecution. This is not as if these churches were megachurches with huge buildings, comfortable in their surroundings, relative freedom to make a living and worship, and just having a bad quarter in their business, business ventures. No, they have likely lost family, jobs, homes, opportunities for any income. But look at what happens. Let the context of this really sink in, that in a great ordeal of affliction, verse 2, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. This, this joyful, sacrificial generosity of these dear saints transcends the severity of their circumstances. Love overshadowed their great affliction. It silenced the painful depth of their poverty. But notice, though, Paul doesn't reveal 
the, the coinage, the gold, the silver, the, the goods that were given. What he is revealing to us here is the greater treasure, the greater value of what, or, or better actually, but who governed their hearts. Who was the greater treasure to their souls? Who superseded their circumstances? And how his grace, God's grace alone, not only enabled them to zealously desire to give, but he was their greatest reason and joy in, in giving. You, you could say, along with John Piper here, that these were true Christian hedonists. Their greatest treasure was how was in whom they had, not in what they had, but what they had was not theirs, but God's. And now to, to recognize, again, by this enabling grace of God, through the eyes of faith and compassion, what they had now, they could joyfully give, knowing that God would supply all their needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. Amen? So when the grace of God is at work within us, it enables us, too, also to place our trust in the power of the Word of God away from the power of the world and its logic and its reasoning. Even when our doubts assault us in the storms of life, it is faith in Christ and his enabling grace that causes us to live faithfully, to live boldly. I would say to live in a risk fashion, in trust in God. Third, grace that serves. The faith of the Macedonian churches truly resulted in good works. Their faith was an active faith that produced works in and through them. And with such an eagerness, again, with such full dependence upon the God of their salvation and the God of their providence, that just as Jesus himself sacrificed his life in the fullness of generosity that no man can ever match, yet they in Christ's likeness sacrificially gave, sacrificially served, and as we see in verse 3, according to what they had and even beyond what they had, and this they did of their own accord. Not out of surplus, but out of even limited resources, yet freely, spontaneously, in the richness of their generosity. Their, their spiritual perspective and their action in giving is what resounded in glory to Christ. But what really stirred Paul when he says, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the grace and fellowship of the support of the saints. And this, this amazing zeal for this fellowship was not as we had expected. Again, in the midst of their poverty and affliction through persecution, what we need to comprehend here is that this was not some great work of the human spirit not some brotherhood of man effort, not some phone bank fundraiser, not mere well-wishing words to be warm and be filled. No, this is the key here is in verse 5, and what we see is our fourth point. This is the whole core of it. Grace and devotion. First, they gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. For us, any, any aspect of gospel ministry, fulfilling the great commission of Jesus Christ into all the world through support of local church and our offerings, 
those even nearest and dearest in need, there must be two fundamental divine realities and experiences at work in the soul and the life of the believer. A humble giving of yourself to the Lord. We see who we are before the Lord and abide in him and our need of him. And second, a joyful giving of yourselves to others. We show preference to one another in love and in deed and obedience. How do we give ourselves to the Lord? What, what does this mean or imply for the Macedonians, for the Corinthian church, for Heritage Grace Church? I think there's several points here. Their, their worldview was such that their hearts were directly committed to the cause of Christ. His gospel, the growth, the expansion of his kingdom, his church being built up, being edified and equipped. Second, their hearts were in prayerful harmony with the king of kings and the priest of their souls and his word. Third, they were very committed to, the pr to prayer in their situation, humbly cognizant of their need for wisdom, how they would individually and corporately, so critical for both, were necessary to be involved in this financial contribution in the support of ongoing ministry. This is in order for them to know how well, how sacrificially may they and can they give. And fourth, fundamentally, they took up their cross each day. They died to themselves. They followed the Lord by his spirit, by his character, by his example. But what about to others? That last point Paul makes, he says, what Paul says to us, by the will of God and to us by the will of God. This is not only to Christ, to his kingdom, to other brothers and sisters in the body, but specifically as these Macedonians did to Paul, they submitted to him as their apostle, as their pastor, as their spiritual leader of their churches. And there's no doubt here that these saints humbly, prayerfully sought out the Lord first and with generous, faith-filled hearts committed themselves to the oversight of Paul and with great care, with great wisdom on what they should give they took financial matters very seriously, very prayerfully, as we should. For Christ says of himself in reminding us and compelling us to seek his counsel, in Proverbs 8:14, counsel is mine and sound wisdom. I am understanding. Power is mine. Paul further exhorts by way of the instruction to the Corinthians in this manner of wisdom, of, of prayer-filled, purposeful giving. When he says further on in chapter 9, verses 6 to 8, of what he experienced from the Macedonian churches, he says, Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. But each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart. There's a plan to it. There's a purpose in it. Before God, this is what I have. This is what you've given me. I purpose in this to give to you. Not grudgingly, not under compulsion. For God loves what? A cheerful giver. 
And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, not just in clothing, not just in food, not just in gas for your car, but in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. These are powerful promises to us from the throne room of God and from the council of our eternal father and caretaker. And we need to rest on these, trust in these. It it is prudent for us as well as members of his church to be committed to prayer and much devotion to the Lord in knowing his will and in understanding that our acts of giving to this church are direct manifestations of a worshipful heart or their careless considerations. And these instructions will enable us to be wise in how we cast our bread on the surface of water, of the waters, not just in good words, but in generous deeds. And finally, fifth, grace that multiplies. So what is our exhortation? How how is this grace multiplied? Simply put, it is in following the example for us. It It is in the doing. Paul exhorts the Corinthians to follow in the same manner an example that the Macedonians demonstrated, how they lived, how they gave. This is why Titus is going back to the Corinthians to see through what they'd started a year ago, this gracious work, and this is what we read finally in verses 6 to 8. So we urge Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. But just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. I'm not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. This this gracious work Paul talks about to be completed in the Corinthian church was this multiplication, this replication of the gracious work of God himself in the body of believers there in Corinth, that they too would rise above their circumstances, even if it be in poverty or in abundance, but that they would in like mind, like heart, be motivated in the grace of God, giving themselves to the Lord by faith and in love for him, that they would overflow. They would abound as well in this gracious work, giving to the needs of others. And note, finally, Paul says this is not a command of his, but rather through the Macedonians' eagerness, this infectious eagerness due to the enabling grace of God and the Lord's abiding presence. These Corinthian believers should prove the genuineness of their own love towards these Jewish saints and to all those in need. So I pray that this text, this section of God's word would be a a very vivid demonstration to us of the enabling power of God's grace to stir us to gospel-centered living in the generation and heeding the commission work of Christ and his kingdom. And especially as this is carried out within the establishment and growth of his local assembly here at Heritage Grace. I pray that we would not become as those that Christ rebuked in the church of Laodicea because you say I'm rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. 
but that we would realize, truly realize our daily dependence upon the grace work of Christ within us and our need for his abiding presence, the sanctifying work of his word and spirit, and with this to hear what is a command of Paul to Timothy. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Let's pray. Our gracious and merciful Father, we do thank you for the, the great grace that you have bestowed on us and all the various means of this grace granting us father power to make wealth by your hand by your wisdom by the blessings that you have bestowed upon us for the opportunities that we have in this land in this country at this time but father i pray that we would like in proverbs a guard our hearts from the deceitfulness of riches, from the deceitfulness of money and worship of money. Father, that our hearts would be united only to fear you, to fear your holy name and all of your authority and re realize that every good gift comes down from the Father of lights. And you have blessed us with such in this time, in this place. And I pray, Lord, that you would stir within our hearts Again, Father, by the great work of your word, of the work of your spirit, that work of grace, that we would be zealous, joyful givers to your kingdom, to your purposes, to your eternal commission. Father, that we would see through the fruit of our labors a great surplus in the harvest of souls. And Father, that you would even stir within us to be faithful farmers, to be sent out, Lord, to harvest the souls that are ripe and ready at your calling and at your command and again at your grace. So thank you for this word, Father. I pray that your spirit would inscribe it upon our hearts and compel us, Lord, with great joy and great love for you to heed your commands, to be delighted in your precepts and to follow you, Lord, willingly, generously all the days of our life. In Jesus' precious, precious name, amen.